Good morning, March 8th. We continue our study called The Reign of Life. We're doing a lot of background work in uh, Acts and Romans to lead up to appreciating why and how Paul starts in chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with Christ through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you look at the handout, we're on the, the page that has, says at the top, reasons and then style and then scope. This is the scope of the book of Romans, the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. I want to call a little bit more attention to this as we move on into chapter 1. And that is, if you uh, go to Romans 8, 29 and 30, this is one of those texts that comes very close to giving us the entire Ordo Salutis. It's from eternity to eternity, how God loves, saves, and keeps us. Who would read for us Romans 8, 29 and 30? I will. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be their firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Thank you, Janice. So who's the main actor in all these verses? God. God is the... One, doing all of these things. Why did he predestine you? What was the goal of that? To be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. I was making this point, I think, in my sermon last week, that salvation is simply the Father giving Jesus a family of sons, of brothers and sisters, who reflect his glory. Jesus being the firstborn among this family. And so notice all these are past tense. Those whom God foreknew, he predestined. And then verse 30, those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also... What's significant about the tense of that verb to glorify? It's past tense. But when is glory? It is, strictly speaking, in time. Future. On the strength of what can Paul say? Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. What's he saying? It's a fait accompli. Your salvation is so certain and so secure. This is one of the few places Paul uses glorified in a past tense. That if God started the process, it will be completed. This is a basis for our assurance. What do we experience so election and predestination and foreknowledge are in the past. Paul uses this word calling, and then those who be justified, those who be justified, uh, we have in the order we have adoption, we have sanctification and glorification. What do you experience in this process? You experience election? No, you don't experience. What do you experience? From a from a human point of view, coming to faith is a process, typically, of? Sanctification. Well, before we are sanctified, what's that? Joy. What do you experience coming to faith? It feels like you're in control of the process. Right? Somebody's shared the gospel with you. You read mere Christianity. You went to a church. You heard a preacher talk about Jesus. You started reading the Bible. It feels like you're in control of 
Paul? Yeah, it feels like you made a choice and you made a decision. And you did. The point of this doctrine is that is proof that you're elect, predestined, and foreknown by the Father. Those whom he elects, he calls to himself and gives the gift of faith whereby we are justified. And so that tells you something very important how to use the doctrine of election, the doctrine of the gospel, and the doctrine of evangelism. For whom is the doctrine of election given in Scripture? For whom, strictly speaking? Believers. For you. And what question is it answering? What question is the doctrine of election answering? This is my sermon a couple weeks ago, but I wouldn't expect you to remember. It's answering the question, why me? Why did I become a Christian? God did this. You use this doctrine to talk about no one else. You don't speculate about Aunt Susie and your next door neighbor and whether Nancy Pelosi or Donald Trump are alike. Don't speculate about that. This doctrine is for you. It's assuring you you're a Christian because God did this. What is the only doctrine, as it were, you want to use to relate to anyone else? What doctrine? Think, cross. The gospel. Your relationship to everyone else, as it were, is mediated through the gospel. And what is the gospel? What question does it answer? How? How does anybody become a Christian? They call on the name of the Lord and they'll be saved. They believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They repent. They receive the gift of salvation. Don't use election to worry about whether or not somebody else is saved. Relate to them with the doctrine of the gospel. They need Jesus, you tell them about Jesus. Oh, that sounds like evangelism. So what question is the doctrine of evangelism answering? Who can be saved? As far as we're concerned, everyone in the world. Take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Does that help? I think we get in trouble when we sit in coffee bars and we speculate about whether or not someone's elect. No, this is a... And except for Romans 9, where Paul gets a little theoretical, the doctrine comes to believers in the context of assurance. He wants you to know God shows you that's how safe you are. It's 1 Peter. We saw it a couple of West Wives in 1 Peter. These are suffering believers. God caused you to be born again according to his foreknowledge, you know Jesus, etc. Okay, so just wanted to make that clear to you. Catherine? Yeah. It kind of touches on this, but it was more like, what do we make of someone who seems to have made a profession but like lost blood and not following through on it? Good. And where exactly, which doctrine helps us with that? Good. That was a little confusing at the end. Let's try to clear that up. So what's the doctrine of glorification? It is the goal for which God has foreknown you. What is the evidence you're elect? You believe the gospel. And as far as we're concerned, on our journey we call life, people who say they believe Jesus, we take them at their word. We give them the benefit of the doubt. You say you believe Jesus? You look like a member in good standing in the church? I'm going to treat you like a Christian. And in our experience, what happens sometimes? There are people who fall off the wagon. They go AWOL. They deny the faith. And we see, right, on the prominent Christians, even in our day, they're reneging on 
the, uh, their once profession of faith. So the profession of faith, R.C. Sproul, is not what counts. It's the possession of faith that counts. Many people say they believe in Jesus, who in the end proved to be the chaff that's burned away, or in these different images that Jesus uses, people who are asleep when he comes, etc., the ladies that go out without any oil in their lamps, right when come. So someone says they have faith, fine, you give them the benefit of the doubt. What's the proof of that faith ultimately? They die in faith. They die in faith. So the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is two-sided. True saints always persevere to the end because God is preserving them. That's the sermon today. You are being kept by God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. It's all about God doing it. So true saints always persevere. They never kick up their heels and say, now that I'm saved, I do nothing. No, they keep looking to Jesus. They keep believing. They're fearful of indwelling sin. They're fighting everything in them that would take them away from the Lord. Nate? One of the phrases we see a lot in the New Testament is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So a lot of people like the Savior part of Jesus, where he's given from our sins and then like all the good things are happening. But I think where you see the people that fall off the wagon is often in the Lord part. Yeah. So at the end of the day, they want to be in charge. Yeah. And they don't want to have to bow the knees to the Lord. And so that's where I see, in my experience, where you're going to get the people to fall off. Because their hearts really never were changed. Good. And do you remember back in the 80s, the worship salvation controversy? This is what Nate is uh, alluding to. There was a book that came out by Charles Ryrie at Dallas Seminary, uh, Great Salvation. And yeah, you were in seminary close to those days, weren't you? Yeah. And, uh, and then John MacArthur responded with his book, The Gospel According to Jesus, and R.C. Sproul weighed in and everything. And it's this controversy. There's a teaching in American Christianity that you can have Jesus as Savior, but not Lord. And that's heretical. He is Lord. Even, doesn't Jesus, is it Matthew 7? You'll say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. And I'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Those are people calling Jesus Lord, performing miracles in his name. Okay, so Catherine, let's make sure we've cleared this up. True saints always persevere. For your part, you are looking to Jesus every second and every day of your life lest I fall away. Confident God will preserve me because he began this. D- now. I feel like some of the question that I heard last week was then, okay, yes, I can have the answer, the question about me, why me, I guess. How am I supposed to feel about if my beloved daughter 10 years from now doesn't seem to okay. trust me? Okay, good. 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 I would lay it on the doctrine of God's covenant faithfulness. This is a child God has given you and John. Gift from the Lord. This child has been placed in the covenant community called the daily home. And when you, you've been baptized as a baby, when you, you took a baptismal vow that said this, do you claim God's covenant promises on Sarah's behalf? What's that covenant promise? 
I will be your God and the God of your children. I am claiming that promise. And you look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ for her salvation as you do for your own. So with the same kind of faith you are trusting Christ to get you to heaven, you're trusting the Lord to save Sarah. So this is not going to happen, beloved sister, but if Sarah walks off the reservation, as it were, what is, how is Catherine praying? Lord, this is an anomaly. Lord, bring her back. Lord, she belongs to you. I'm going to trust that till the day I die. Bring her back into fellowship with yourself. Does that answer your question? That's how you pray. You assume she is, in fact, elect because God gave her to you and John until it's painfully out. There are some anomalies in God's economy, right? There are some people born into the household of faith that wander off the reservation and never come back. But I'm not going to lose fear of that for my children. I'm going to trust that these, uh, and God is going to save and preserve them and pray like the Dickens that God will make her miserable until she comes back. So, yes, Chad? Can we, sorry, can we, can we pray that God keep your promise? Yes, I'm leaning on your promise to be my God and the God of my children. He wants to be trusted for those promises. You'll never be ashamed of believing that promise. Nate? Oh, go ahead, Janice, and then yeah. Well, you know, for me, this is a great comfort because I, you know, arguing from the greater to the lesser, that we claim God's covenant promises for our children. Therefore, God will take care of the little things in our children's life, as well as the larger, larger, larger things. So that's something that I have to remind myself of when I struggle because a child's made a decision or because a circumstance doesn't look good. That, that to build my faith, to remind myself that God is for my child. Good. Good. I just think we want to be careful the way that we use the word promises because if your child doesn't come around, it makes it seem like God hasn't kept his promise. And that's not what that's not what's happening. So that, that's why I think we should be careful about how, how strongly we want to talk about there's a difference between hope and an expectation that somebody's going to come around. And some don't. And so I think, is, I think, is that what you're struggling with? The fact that some don't come back around? Well, but I, our forefathers of the faith and the PCA and probably before them the OPC have crafted these vows that really reflect what I would just call a holy presumption. There's a holy presumption on the Lord. Do, do you claim God covenant promises on their behalf and look in faith to their salvation for their salvation for him? There's kind of a holy presumption where you're going to trust God. You're going to, you're going to believe God for that. And those kids that ultimately die in unbelief, they're an anomaly. They're, all right, they, what, you know, I, I think it's, until it's painfully obvious otherwise, we want to lean on those promises. But maybe we're splitting hairs or disagreeing or something. Yeah, I, I don't think it, it's wrong to say God keep the promise in the sense that Essentially, 
confident. We, I'm not putting God against the wall. I'm just reminding him what he reminded me that that covenant, family, that covenant that we made with him, that, that he makes with us, right? that we baptize our children into the covenant family. You know, you, every pastor I've known here, will turn to the congregation and say, now that we've established this, do you take to uh, assist the parents in the Christian nurture of this job? So, when I say keep promise, I'm not, I'm not, neither nor I'm not pinning God against the wall. I'm not trying to be brash like that. Because God already, already knows what's going to happen. Already knows. Yes, they're going to fall away. Yes, we are alike. We don't know about God next to us, whether they're alike or not. They say they do. They profess their belief. Like you said, they can say the Lord, Lord, and, and not mean it. But we have to take them at their word. Yeah. Maybe, Nate, this helps. I don't know. Um, I made the statement at the beginning of the class. The doctrine of election can really ultimately only assure you that you're saved. It can't assure me that my kids are saved. It's for me. And maybe that's the difference. We can't go to God and say, our kids are elect, because we don't know that. We pray that they are. We treat, is that what? Well, and God was faithful to Abraham, even though Esau was rejected. Yeah. Judas was a member of the community to whom God made those promises. We're not, the fact that they were not saved, to use you know kind of modern terms, yeah. is not a reflection of God's that His promises were not um, were not kept. So uh, to me, to me, the way I, the, the comfort that I have is if I think of my children in that situation is God is the just judge and He's not going to do anything unfairly and. So it really ultimately rests up to him. Yep. And the, the fact there's a huge benefit to the fact that our children are in the covenant community. Yep. They're not growing up in Africa or someplace where they haven't heard the gospel. So wonderful. So yep. many things there. But we can't... Just because they're here doesn't guarantee that they're not going to end up uh, as an Esau or Judas. But we should... The way I think about it is we should trust God for that. God's the one who's in control. Yep. He's a good God and loves us. Yep. And so we, we rest within him. Yeah. That holy, is that holy, same thing, holy presumption? I'm, I'm resting in... I, I, I personally wouldn't presume, but that's with me. Okay. Melissa? Um, <laughs> Do we have a house divided? No, I'm kidding. Maybe a little bit. What? Maybe a little bit. But um, on Chad's point about calling out God's promises back to him, we have that precedent in Moses. When God and Moses, when they spoke with each other, Every time the Israelites sinned, God would speak his promises given to the Israelites back to God, and God would act, you know, or seemingly change his course. So we have that example of, um, of, of praying God's promises back to him. Because like Janice was saying, that's a strengthening to our faith as we, as we hope for what we would like to see, these good things that are promised to us. I guess we just don't. I just want think we just want to be careful to not say God has promised that our children will be saved because Esau wasn't, Judas was, right. so they're not. Right. So that, that's why I think we need to be careful if we don't spell that out. Yeah. And yet, and yet, here's the other side. The covenant is, I will be your God and the God of your children. 
And that's said for a reason, isn't it? So that's why there's a holy presumption there. But yes. Paul, you were you had your hand up, brother. Well, just the, the question: of what, seeing it from God's perspective, there, was, what would be God's objective in offering a promise in the first place? Why would He do such a thing if there were not some communication of His intent and that we were to stand on it? His intent that we would stand on it. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Thank you. Let's move on. Let's move on. Um, but these are good. These are good things, and those of us with children, and they're, this is very near and dear to our hearts. Ultimately, because we care nothing more in the world than you know, as it were, for our kids' salvation. Okay, let's come to the handout and the subject of the uh, epistle to the Romans is the gospel. That is the Greek word euangelion, which means to announce good news. What do you think I mean when I say good news is a relative term? I'm on the handout right below ordo salutis, subject, the gospel. Euangelion, good news. What do we mean by it's a relative term? Melissa? It's good news for those who read, but bad news for those who don't. Okay. And it's good news for people who are feeling really awful before in the presence of a holy God, who think they're sinners with no hope of eternal life in themselves, here's good news. God will save you through his Son, not your works. That's really good news. And Jesus, when preaching the good news, we're told, the apostles when preaching the good news. How does Paul introduce the gospel in Romans? Let's go to Romans chapter 1. <clears throat> Somebody read verse 1. Paul, the servant of Christ Jesus, Thank you, Frank. This is the passion of his life. It's the thing he realizes is why he exists. His mission in life, he is set apart for the gospel. And in Galatians, is it Galatians 1, he talks about even before he was born, God set him apart for the gospel. Very strong sense of identity. I'm, I'm a man created in the Lord to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Yeah, fantastic. Then he identifies the origin of the gospel. Somebody read verse 2. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Thank you. Where do we find the gospel? In the Scriptures. Which Scriptures is he referring to there? The Old Testament. I love the way Luke brackets this. Real quick, go to Luke 1, Zechariah' prophecy. And the gospel in Paul's day is the fulfillment of a promise. Speaking of promises, God promised, he promised, he promised, fulfilled. There's a wonderful commentary series by McGrath called Promise and Fulfillment. Promise and Fulfillment. Every seminarian's dream. Because promise and deliverance. Yeah, sorry. So look at Zechariah's prophecy. Somebody read beginning at uh, Luke 1, 68, 4. And notice how he's saying that the coming of his son, John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Savior, all this is the fulfillment of what God was promising. Just listen to the language. Somebody read starting at 69 through 79. 68. Uh-huh. Thanks, Nate. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate 
to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, to grant that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. Thank you. Um, notice all those past tenses. He's visited. He's accomplished. And yet, Jesus isn't even on the scene yet. But it's this, the, the birth of John the Baptist is the marker. Boom! All those promises are coming to fruition. Look quickly at the end of Luke. I said Luke brackets this. Jesus on the road to Emmaus with the two men. Luke 24, verse 25 he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe what? All that the prophets have spoken. These guys should have known about Jesus because it was in the prophets. Now, if you were a New Testament Jew, you could refer to the Old Testament as the prophets. You could refer to it as the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Or you could refer to it as the law and the prophets. Just like we call the Bible the scriptures. The Bible, my sword, the New Testament, etc. These different designations for the same thing, the Old Testament revelation. Okay? So Jesus says, you should have known this. And what, what, what did the prophet speak? Verse 26. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them. That's the word hermeneutic. He hermeneutic to them all in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. That was one heck of a Bible study. When we get to heaven, go get that CD and listen to Jesus interpret all the scriptures telling about himself. Woo! <laughs> oh, that's just glorious. Okay, so Luke brackets, right? The subject of the gospel is promised beforehand. Number three, what's this? Uh, back to Romans 1 now, guys. <clears throat> What exactly is the subject of the gospel according to verse 3? Concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. Okay. So the gospel is about Jesus, the son of God. Number 4, you see something about the son's nature, which is according to verse 3, and somebody read 4. And was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you. Son of David, Christ's humanity. Son of God, Christ's deity. Why did he have to be the son of David? Fulfilled the promise. Promise. Yeah. He fulfilled the promise. Um, Jesus was prophet, priest, and king. David was a king. David was from the tribe of... Jesus was not born from the tribe of Levi. He was born in the tribe of Judah. Praise Judah. From the tribe of Judah. So from... What was the promise made to David? There will be one sitting on your throne, i.e. from your descendants, that's going to reign forever. This is Jesus. Okay? Um, what is the goal of the gospel according to verse 5? Do you want me to read five for us? Through him and for his name's sake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among the Gentiles 
repent. What's the goal of the gospel? The obedience that comes from faith. Is that confusing? So, Jesus said, this is the will of my Father who sent me, that you believe in him whom he sent. So we believe the gospel as an act of obedience, as it were. It's not obedience that saves. But we're called to believe the gospel. And so that this phrase, the, um, this phrase, the obedience of faith, I think is one of these things where in Scripture it has two sides to it, depending on how you look at it. The goal of our obedience of our faith I'm sorry, the goal of our faith is obedience that flows from faith, and yet faith is obedient submission to the call of God. So let me see if I can diagram it. Some of you have been in my classes before have seen this diagram. So bear with me. Different ways people have seen human beings are saved. Okay, you've got human effort that produces a right standing before God. So there's the word justified, a righteous standing before God, works, human effort human effort, it is by our doing that we can achieve a right standard before God. Anybody know the technical theological term for that? Begins with a P. Pelagianism. Pelagianism. Okay? Does the Bible teach that? Not even close. Then you have people that come along and say, oh no, you need to, you need to have faith in Jesus, FJ, but you've got to do your part and on the strength of that, God makes you righteous for his presence. Semi-Pelagianism. Semi-Pelagianism. And what religions does that represent? With the Orthodox Jesus, that's Catholicism. With the non-Orthodox Jesus, that's Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, etc. That your justification before God depends on what you do. And sadly... It's a lot of really sweet, well-meaning people who are in the church who don't get the gospel yet. They believe in Jesus, you know, on Good Friday, Jesus died for my sins, but I've got to add my part. And they live with an awful lot of doubt and uncertainty and fear. Because what's the million dollar question? How much is enough? How much is enough? Was Jesus' death and righteousness enough? Yes. So then you have the infinite... Oops, I gave it away. Faith in Jesus, this is where Nate was earlier with the Lordship Salvation Controversy, produces justification regardless of what you do. Antinomianism. <laughs> Antinomianism. Anti-against, namas, the law. The fear in this thinking was if you introduce works into the equation, you'll create some sort of legalism or works righteousness. This is also legalism. And what, as I understand it, what those theologians fail to grasp is because faith and repentance are gifts of God, they can't, they can't ever be called meritorious. God gives us the grace of faith. He gives us the grace of repentance. Of course it's not meritorious. Okay? Antinomianism. That's, that's not the gospel. Isn't this what James, James chapter 2, beginning at verse 14, what good is it, my friend, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith Save him. His answer is no. That faith can't save him. So what is the gospel? Our reformed brothers and sisters said we are saved by faith alone, but not by faith which is alone. 
saving faith always issues in the life change. You bear fruit. Works. Does that help? This is the gospel. For by grace you've been saved through faith. Not of yourself, it's the gift of God. Not as a result of works that anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, and God forbid beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. Nate. I think it's key to remember that that W is always there, because there's some, some folks that would want to say, okay, faith alone means the works don't have to be present. And uh, I think it's helpful to use the term that Paul uses, which is justification by faith apart from works. And so the works are still there, yeah. but you're not relying on any of them for your justification. Right. And the question is merit, right? These, these works are non-meritorious. Jesus, if God accepts me on the basis of whose works? Christ's. Christ's. You are saved by works, actually. The works of Christ. You say by trusting that those works are enough, they're sufficient. And as Janice said earlier, we couldn't possibly add anything to that because the gospel is, when it comes to morality... God gives you an A+. Plus. So, the exam's over. You're accepted. You're free. No condemnation. You're an A+. Plus. What, what do you want as extra credit? Or It's done. Christ did it. It's all done in Him. This is Paul's passion. It should be ours. It's liberating. It produces a life that changes us. It causes us to stand in awe. It's a living hope, as we'll see in the sermon. Etc., etc. Alright, I'm going to move on unless you want to say more about this. This just helps me tease out some of the confusion that we can run into. And this is this here is a whole lot of sincere, well-meaning people who need clarity on the gospel. Okay? I think the, the one scripture that kind of steps out for me on that is, uh, is in Philippians for uh, work out your own salvation or is God who works in you both will and to do his good pleasure. Good. So it's two-sided coin. We are called, this is perseverance of the saints, we are called to work at our salvation with fear and trembling. What are we fearful of from a human point of view? As it were. We're fearful of ruining it. Right? I, there's a sense in which I'm going to wake up in the morning and go, if left to myself, I'm going to ruin this. But it's not terror because... God is at work in me, but willing to work for his good pleasure. He will preserve me. This doctrine is two-sided. There's the tension. Okay. So the classic example is the New Testament book of Hebrews. Hebrews has these warnings about falling away. They're embedded in the doctrine of the perseverance. You must persevere. You're warned not to give up the fight. And yet we rest. Hope isn't hope. I think it was... Well, he's gone. Chad's gone. Hope isn't hope if it's if, uh, if it's if it's we don't have anything. He doesn't give us promises to trust. All right, let's move on. Um, just making the point that what is the uh, obedience of faith? It's gospel obedience that flows from faith, and it's the faith is our obedience submission to the call of God. God calls us to trust the gospel. What's our new status? Verse 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace 
from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. Last Sunday's sermon, saint, comes from the Greek word that means holy. Thank you. Saints are holy ones. You have been set apart. His precious possession. Glory. Glory in that. Relish that. Be stunned. Be amazed. Who would ever think I'd become a believer? Amazing. You did this. You're going to finish it. Uh, The benefits, I think Janice read the end of seven, are grace and peace from God our Father. Incidentally, just our status as saints, one of the phrases of the Reformation was simo justus et peccator, simultaneously just and sinner, just and sinful. We're this kind of contradiction. We're set apart. We're cleansed. We're absolutely legally righteous in God's sight. This is a declaration God makes over those who are in union with Christ. As righteous as my son, and yet we're still struggling with sin internally. And that's what sanctification is. I think somebody said that earlier, and that's what we're going to get into in Romans 5-8. through One day, uh, how about verse 8? This is for the, the Gospels for believer and unbeliever. Somebody read, I'm sorry, number 8. Read 14 and 15 for us. Paul feels an obligation to believer and unbeliever alike. What's the basis of that obligation? Why does he believe he owes them the gospel? He's an apostle. This is his job, is to pronounce it. This is what he's set apart for. And we know Jesus wants to save the entire world, Jew and Gentile alike. Therefore, I'm sent to them. Okay? And did I want to say anything else about that? Interesting how Paul says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also in Rome. He's writing to Christians, and he wants to preach the gospel to them. Why? They need to hear it. They need to hear it. They especially need... from Paul. <laughs> because? I'm just saying especially from Paul, because I feel what I mean. Yeah. Christians need the gospel every day. Um, Tertullian, one of the church fathers, had this wonderful phrase that Christ was crucified between two thieves. Anybody know this one? The thief of legalism, on the one hand, which is this, F plus W equals justification, and the thief of antinomianism on the other, which was this one. Shouldn't have erased it. And I, I know in my heart my heart will swing between those two things. I'll wake up one day, I've got to prove my worth to God, so to speak. I'll wake up another day, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter, I'm saved by grace, it doesn't matter what I do. Give, my, give myself a pass. I think we can swing between these two things in our hearts, the only thing that can anchor us. And both are forms of pride, incidentally. Oh, look at me, I deserve this. Or I'm good enough, I can show God I was worth saving. Pride, even though they look really different, I think they're both motivated by pride. Only the gospel beat into my heart is going to keep me from those two things. You need it every day, every day, living before the cross every day. Which is why all these New Testament letters, what's the first thing the writers give the people that he's writing to? Grace and peace. The gospel. The gospel. He gives them the gospel. Peter, Paul, John. 
How about uh, verse 10? Excuse me, number 10, verse 17. Actually, no, wait, we want to do 16. Verse 16, the power of God for salvation. The gospel is, somebody read verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Good. It's Greek word dunamis, from which we get dynamite, the power of God for salvation. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of it. What's significant about that? Have you ever been tempted to be ashamed of the gospel? Yeah, right? You, reluctance to, you know, this guy's going to think I'm nuts if I believe this. Right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He's, that comes up again in 2 Timothy chapter 1 for, for frail, timid Timothy. Um, and how about verse 17? Thanks, Nate. What's the antecedent to it? In it, in the gospel. gospel. So the gospel is a revelation of what? Strictly speaking, the righteousness of God. Now, your first inclination when you hear that is to think about God's attributes. God is eternal. God's infinite. God's self-existent. God's merciful. We talk about God's communicable and incommunicable attributes. Those things that he alone is incommunicable, those things that are communicable, that are ref- and there are attributes of God that are reflected in us as his image bearers. When you hear about the righteousness of God, you think, oh, God is a person incapable of doing anything morally wrong. That's all true. It's not what Paul's talking about here. He says, in the gospel, the righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. Commentators understand this to mean that the, right, the gospel is righteous to God and that it's the revelation of how a holy God who's absolutely righteous, there's no sin in his presence, how does an absolutely righteous God make people who are unrighteous perfectly suitable for his presence? And frankly, that's the way I like to share the gospel, particularly with a Mormon, somebody like that. What is your hope of standing in the presence of an absolutely holy God who will have no sin in his presence? Where do you find that kind of righteousness? The answer, it's in Jesus alone. And if Jesus lived the perfect life under the law of God in your place, there's nothing you can add to that. Because there, the faith plus works equals, although there, Jesus is a messed up Jesus, which is infuriating. (coughs) Every time we drive by that stupid thing down there on the beltway, we just say, convert them, blast it apart, yuck. I'm probably speaking a little out of turn here. I'm talking about the castle. <laughs> we need to stop. Now it's time to stop. One last comment on that, Mike. And once again, this is the thing I saw as I was a teacher for, for children who were in Christian families. For them, it was Jesus died on the cross for my sins. But they did not understand the gift of righteousness because of his perfect uh, life for them. Yeah. And, you know, it's not that they give the bell wouldn't necessarily, but in many circumstances, the gospel is only preached as he died on the cross for my sin. Yeah. Yeah. And so, th- if that's your gospel, what do you live wondering the rest of your life? Can I fall out of my salvation because I sin again or whatever? I don't know. 
Yeah, and is there something left to show God? You know, is, uh, the imputed righteousness, this is the gospel we're going to get from Paul, imputed righteousness and imputed sin. Our sin to Jesus, his righteousness to us. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this precious word, your servant Paul, and how clear your word is to us that the gospel is from faith to faith. It starts with faith, it ends with faith. How we need faith, give us faith. This beautiful Holy Spirit wrought ability to trust your promises, to live by faith. Without which, it's impossible to please you. So as we worship you now, fill our hearts with faith, open the eyes of our hearts to behold the unseen and uh, to be enriched, encouraged more deeply in love with Jesus, to walk in his ways, to reveal his glory in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.